0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all in this capacity. If you're just joining us for the first time, we started last week going through a sermon series called Onward from the book of 2 Peter. So I'm going to continue in preaching from that. So 2 Peter, if you have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the edges all around the room. Go to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, and I'll be reading through Verse 21. where the lord says to us in his word these things. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by the way of reminder. Since I know that by putting off my body will be soon as our lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to fu- you may be able at any time, to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. and We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men speak from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord to us. Well, my mom is in town this weekend, which means you do touristy things. And it means you go out to eat. And it means, hopefully, that she'll pay for it. And on Friday afternoon or Friday night, we went up the tram up the mountain to the top. And I love going up the tram. It's my second time up. I do not like going down. Thankfully, it's my second time down. But on the way up, you you hear the, the operator of the tram say different things about what you're seeing, different types of trees or heights or, you know, a lightning struck this part. And one of the things that they pointed out that really sticks with me even now is that there's this giant rock that looks like a cylinder and it goes about 75 feet high, yet uniquely it looks like a bunch of little rocks stacked on top of each other. So much like if you were to look at the side of your fist, it has little notches that go up. This rock looked like it was a 75-foot tower of other rocks, which in itself would be amazing. But amazingly, it's just one giant rock. Water hasn't knocked it down. Wind hasn't brought it over. Though there are you know, little crevices or little things grinded away, it still stands there. And I kept thinking as we were going up, like, what it must feel like to know that our faith can be that established, and that unshakable. I love that Peter, when he writes to us in his second letter to the churches, that one of the things that he is trying to do in the face of oppression or opposition or doubt, and even when facing the end, he hopes, he wants to remind people to ground themselves in Christ. And by doing so, their faith would be unshakable as it's established in him. We come to the text this morning being reminded that there are many doubters in the world, not just in our world, that's not new, but but in the case of this book where people were against Christianity, sometimes violently or sometimes intellectually or sometimes just emotionally. And so people seem to be at their last ends and Peter is writing to them to encourage them. In our section this morning, in this passage of scripture, he's writing to encourage them to establish themselves firmly in the faith. If you were going to give advice to a young couple who's about to be married, what advice would you give so that their marriage is firmly rooted in the faith? Or finances, what, what kind of advice would you give that our finances would be firmly rooted in the faith? And here he's talking about their lives being firmly rooted and established. In unshakable faith. He does a couple of things. The first one that he does is he tells them to be stirred up in godliness. So if you're following along in the outline, that's point number one, be stirred up in godliness. And he does this by reminding them to pay attention to the things that he's already told them. So up uh, in 11 verses before this, he told them several things that they should do in order to establish themselves in unshakable faith. He reminds them that when he told them, for this every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and then virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And he goes on with eight things that in order to do those things, you're pursuing godliness. He's writing to them, he's saying here, almost as a bridge from section saying, I want to remind you to do those things. And then he also says, don't just do those things, but he wants to remind them yet again As if 11 previous verses didn't do it, he wants to remind them yet again to be reminded of the gospel itself. So be reminded to pursue godliness, be reminded of the the gospel itself, and he does this in repetition, even when talking about doing this in repetition. So verse 12, it says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, he does this to stir you up by the way of reminder. Verse 15, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What a, what a wonderful reminder that we need a reminder. And when we've had a reminder, we need another reminder. You know, this isn't the Lord just parenting us where it's like, that's not where your toys go. Go. Take out the trash. It's not, But those things bring about good works in the lives of Christians. And he's saying that he wants to remind them of these things because by doing so, it will establish them in the faith. By being reminded of the gospel continually, it establishes you in the faith. By being reminded to pursue godly virtue, it establishes you in an unshakable faith. I'm reminded not just in global church history, but also local church history, when you think of, Local churches that are established and they might have the reputation of, spiritually speaking, catching on fire or really busting at the seams or growing in godliness. That generation, it almost seems like, felt like they were starved for years and years and the the word by the spirit was unleashed on them. And they became consumers of the word. Now consumers, positively speaking, where that was what they were taking in day and night. And then you see a church going on like that where the next generation, it seems like, the gospel, unlike their parents, wasn't consumed, but the gospel then was assumed. They might know the things of the Lord. They might know the things of Scripture. They might even know all the stories from VBS. They could tell you that. But they were just assuming the gospel, not consuming it or being consumed by it. And then the generation that follows is one that forgets or rejects the gospel. I know that Brooke and I, come from families where my parents are are first-generation Christians. Uh, Brooke's family, at least in part, is first-generation Christians. And so we are that middle section where where we're already talking about, okay, when we have kids, we need to make sure our faith is real and living out and that we're in love with the Lord more than anything else because our kids are going to watch us. And in the same way, Peter is telling these churches to remember the gospel truth, to remember the pursuit of godliness. And he's doing this wonderfully on his way out of the picture. So these timeless truths of a pastor will outlast him. In verse 13, it says, I think it right that as long as I'm in this body, as long as he's alive, to stir you up by the way of reminder, since I know that by putting off my body will be soon. And our Lord Jesus made clear to me. So here we see this aging, wonderful saint who wants to, if you could tell someone any bit of advice, He wants to first tell this church, remember what you've been told. So being rooted in the faith or establishing an unshakable faith, how do you do that first? Be reminded of who God is. Be reminded of what is true. Be reminded of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me because when you remind yourself of those things, it it never ceases to fail to bring you utter joy. So he says that we should be stirred up in the pursuit of godliness second he says that we should know the power and the return of jesus so if i were to write this outline again i would take out the and and just make this know the powerful return of jesus because whenever these two words are pieced together in our scriptures they really mean one thing is happening that the lord is being spoken about as returning but not just returning he's he's powerfully returning He's not creeping in the back door. He's not coming in after the party has started. He is powerfully and on purpose and visibly and noticed by all of creation returning. And he says in verse 16 that this is not something that is to be compared with by a cleverly devised myth. It says in verse 16, For we did, not know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there is he's not placing Christianity as a comparable religion to other religions. It's, it's incomparable. It's on its own standard. It's above all these other things that he refers to as, in many ways it could be written, silly little myths. Now, what are these silly little myths? Well, there could be a variety of things that he's talking about. Jewish myths may have been the context of what he was writing to, or religious embellishments of history where they take what everyone knew to be true, like let's just say uh, Noah and the Ark. I want to make sure I didn't say Jonah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark. That's something that everyone agrees with, but what is the purpose in the story of Noah and the Ark? And there were factions that were misconstruing scriptures to fit their own agenda And he's saying that this is nothing like those cleverly devised myths. Or there were pagan myths about the descent of gods of the earth. You know, we watch movies today like Marvel, where there are all these kind of forces or mystical gods throughout the universe that are empowering things and holding things together. He's basically saying, "Ah, that's a bunch of bunk. This is what is true. Or there's another group, Gnostic Speculation, about the various forms of God and spirituality. When I was little, we weren't allowed to watch the TV cartoon Captain Planet. Um, now, I've seen Captain Planet because I'm old and I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> and Captain Planet is, is all these, um, these fictional characters. And when they combine the forces of wind and fire and water and some other... Thing I can't remember when they, when they combine all that, Captain Planet emerges from the earth and saves everyone. can't remember the end by like recycling or something. But we, we look at that and we giggle because like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But people actually believe, and not because they're foolish or unwise, but because they've been deceived, that powers and gods come from God's creation rather than God created everything and he is the only God. And so Peter's writing this saying, we're not talking about the Lord returning in comparison to all these other myths. This is true, what we are talking about. And when he's referring to the return of God, which I'll get into in a little bit, he's talking about when the Lord Jesus himself will physically and presently be with his people, where he will return from ruling and reigning in the heavens and will be here with his own. It's a spectacular thing to see. And whatever it's talked about, it's referred to with words like majesty and power and powerful. I mean, there's nothing that we can do that that can compare what this picture is to us. Matthew 24 says that they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The only thing that I could come up with that what this would look like is I think from one of the best movies in all of creation, and that's Independence Day, the original with Will Smith, where the only thing that can give us a picture of what the Lord will look like when he returns is when an alien invasion comes. And when this mega ship from the sky comes into the earth's atmosphere, it looks like fire and clouds are rolling back over it. And it terrifies everyone. And when the Lord returns, it should terrify a lot of people. Those who are enemies of the Lord will not survive the Lord's return. Those who have put themselves against God, the only God, the true and very existing God, when he returns, it will be nothing like what Will Smith thought when he was looking up at that ship. You will want to run, but you cannot hide. And for everyone else, when the Lord returns for his people, it will be like what it was in the garden, where peace was all over the earth. And when the Lord was with his people, it was very, very good. And when we have these longings from Psalm 23, where we're longing for a shepherd to be with us, we can't imagine being without a shepherd. We will will never have those feelings again because the Lord will be with his people. We have glimpses of that. Peter has a glimpse of that, and he tells us that through referring to the Transfiguration. So he talks about in verse 16 there towards the end, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And what he's talking about is what would have been seen in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different places where the Lord was on a hill, a holy hill, the scriptures say, and he was speaking to Elijah and Moses. And then what happened was his body started to transform into a glorious and holy state his clothing became dazzling white and God's voice from the heavens, the Father spoke and was heard by other people. And he said, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased listen to him. Matthew 17, verse five says, This transfiguration that Peter is now alluding to was a significant event in the revelation of Jesus' deity. Jesus was a lot of things, and we would be good to try to know all of those things that Jesus was. And here, Jesus is being talked about as one who is being inaugurated as the one who owns and rules all the things of the earth. The context of not following cleverly invented stories in our passage now hits up with when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. Here's the clue of what the issue was about. There were people who were denying that Jesus would return. And, P- and Peter is saying, look, I knew Jesus, I heard Jesus speak, but I also saw a glimpse of what that will look like. Because one of the things that is unique about the transfiguration, it's not just something dazzling to look at, but it's a, it's a glimpse or a foretaste of what the glorified Lord Jesus will look like when he returns. And it was majestic and pure in everyone's sight. In our passage, this is, uh, this is the coming that Peter is referring to. So two things are kind of clear from Peter's statement here. Uh, the first one is that 2 Peter is, is countering a claim that Jesus' return is a joke. Peter's saying it's not a joke. I've seen what it's gonna look like when he returns. I've seen Jesus transfigured. And to the enemies, it's terrifying. And to those who are the Lord's, it's spectacular. So he's rebuking the claim that, his return, that Jesus' return is a joke. The second one is that Peter interprets the transfiguration as not simply as a vision or the power or the glory of Jesus, but a vision of his actual return. And he's saying that he is an eyewitness of this, and other people are an eyewitness of this. And so we can safely say that the eyewitnesses are showing us or bestowing on us some, some form of majesty of who Jesus will look like or what Jesus will look like when he returns. So he, he talks about in this second section that Jesus will return in power. Now what I, what I also love about this passage, what it shows is that when he returns in power, it's like an enthronement. An enthronement is on the horizon. So look at verse 17. It says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. So for Second Peter, the point of the transfiguration was about Jesus receiving honor and glory bestowed on him from the Father, given to him by God himself. That, that word majestic glory is yet another name for a holy God. And Peter is defending Jesus as the object of the faith by highlighting the honor of the event. Now, just to go back to the myth section, just a couple of verses up, you know, one of the things that's great about stories or myths or books that we might read is they have, they have cool characters, right? Good books have cool characters, and all those good characters are kind of prodding along or pushing either the reader or another character to an ultimate virtue, you know, whether that's forgiveness or redemption or revenge or, you know, a glorified shootout in a Western or something. But what Peter is saying, what's different about our scriptures and what's different about what we know of Jesus is Jesus is actually the character of the object of the story. He is the one who is to be worshipped. All of the things are pointing to him in our scriptures. He's the apex of our understanding of what we're supposed to understand. So Peter is referring in verse 17 that God himself spoke about Jesus with honor and glory. And what we see here is we see an approval. Of one who has been given, or one who has been given approval to conquer and rule the nations. So let me say that by this. Look at verse 17. It says, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he he sees what happens. He hears what happens. But what's amazing is the language that Peter is pulling together from what he has not only seen, but what also has been spoken about in other parts of scripture. So we have three accounts of the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're all really, really similar. Okay, so when they're all really, really similar, they're talking about the same thing so we can trust that that thing happened, but also when they're talking about the same thing, they might emphasize some other things a little bit different, but here's what Peter pulls out of that. He pulls out what really happened in Matthew, but then he also uses the same language of what's being spoken about by a son in Psalm chapter two. So in Psalm chapter two, there's this case where a son is given power and rule and dominion over all things. And so Peter is using that language that was been spoken about, and the very language that God the Father actually said about Jesus, and he's talking about this is the one who is to be worshiped. And so what we gain from all that is not only trust in the Bible, and I love when when everything is like merging together and you see, oh, it's, it's like someone wrote this on purpose for his own people, but also what it actually shows. That Jesus is given the approval to conquer evil, to save what is his, but to rule over everything. When God says that this is my beloved son, it had a lot of baggage that came with it. And so here we can trust in who Jesus is going to appear as. He's going to appear as a king who is coming for his own nation. And he's going to separate, in other parts of the Bible it says, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. So again, terrifying and also really, really encouraging. Now you might read this and go, okay, why is Peter telling all these things to these people? Why is there so much package into this amount? And what Peter is doing, he's writing to people who feel oppressed. He's writing to people who are being mocked. He's writing to people who are feeling like they're at their last ends. He's writing to people who are exhausted. These are mature, exhausted Christians. And he's saying you can establish an unshakable faith when you remind yourself that the Lord himself is coming for his people and that will be peace forever and ever and ever. So the day gets a little bit sweeter. The night gets a little less lonely. The constant battles seem to be smaller and smaller when in other parts of the scriptures, the Lord is coming and he's riding on a white horse. He's bearing a sword and he's coming for his people. Now I love I love what Christian marriages do, or probably what all marriages do. They have a groom up front and they have a bride coming down a center aisle, symbolic, yes. But the picture that's shown to us in the scriptures is is actually it's the bride up front needing a savior to come for her. Needing the groom to come for his bride. Now I offered that opportunity to Brooke at our wedding, and she didn't she didn't take it, which is fine. It looks normal on pictures. But it's so wonderful to be reminded that he's not just coming to be with us, but that he once came and took our place from our sin and bore the wrath that we deserved, and now he is coming to establish all peace. And Peter has a glimpse of that, and he's giving that to his people. So you can be stirred up to establish peace stability and steadfastness in your faith. And also, secondly, you can know the power and the return of Jesus. And then lastly here in our text, we we might see that we can be established in our faith by paying attention to the prophetic word. So third, pay attention to the prophetic word. Let me read from verse 19 and 20. It says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So here we can pay attention, or we're told to pay attention to the prophetic word. Now, prophetic word that seems, you know, maybe juicy to some and terrifying to others. Whenever the prophetic word, that phrase is used in the Scripture, it's always talking about or referring to the Old Testament. So, so there's several books on the front end of your Bible because the audience here who would be receiving this letter, they didn't have the totality of the New Testament. But Peter is telling them that they need to pay attention to the scriptures that they already have because the scriptures are breathed out by God and spoken through other men by God. And that is one way that they can remain steadfast in their faith. But one of the things I love, love, love about this text is you just had Peter, a witness of Christ, Peter, a witness of the transfiguration of Christ, tell these people who didn't have those things, they weren't a witness of Christ, they weren't a witness of the transfiguration, he is saying that what they have, the prophetic word, is most certain for their life and godliness. So it says in our text, more fully confirmed, if you're using using the ESV, which is a pretty good translation. But this text shows itself in the original as something like this to have something made more certain. So the scriptures that this audience would have had is something that allows them to make their faith more certain. Now if you're like me, you like to go to a restaurant, the first thing you do at a restaurant is you order a drink, it's really hot outside so I'm gonna go for a tall iced Coca-Cola. And the waiter looks at you and you know what's coming and you're sad already and he goes, what about Pepsi? And you go, no. I don't want Pepsi. It's terrible. That's why I asked for Coke. And they go, "We just don't. We just don't have Coke. We want Pepsi." With the same amount of oomph, we have this certainty through the word that is better than other things of which God could have given us. It's better than experiences. It's better than visions that you and I might have. It's better than a pep talk that you might get from a friend. The word of God as given to us is actually the best thing that we can have on this side of heaven in order to establish ourselves in unshakable faith. It's It's incredible to think about. And what's so great about this is reminding ourselves of the context. This is someone who has seen those kinds of things. Now, if I were to describe to you, let's say I went to a a World Series, you know, game seven, and I saw the ending, and someone would say, what was it like? And I go, man, you just have to be there. Now, what, what kind of fool would I look like if I said, oh, tell me what it was like? Oh, you should totally go read the newspaper because that is a better account than I could even give you. And here we actually have That being spoken to us, where the Lord, through his prophets, through his writers, through his apostles, has pieced together something for the church that is better than even Peter witnessing the transfiguration of the glory of God. That is so, that builds such confidence in our lives. It it pieces together so much of our aspirations and in many ways, it humbles us to where we might have books and books and books in our house, whether magazines or whatever. And do we just, in many ways, figuratively tear apart the scriptures that we have in front of us? One of my good friends in high school, her dad passed away tragically in college. And at the funeral, she spoke and gave a testimony about the kind of man that he was. Now, he was a, uh, like an executive pastor at a church in town. And what she talked about him, she goes, you know, my dad has a lot of books in his office and, and we love him and he spends a lot of time with us. But the thing that I love about my dad's office is all the books in his office, they're not really marked up. But the Bible is falling apart because it's the only thing that held him together. It's tremendous what God gives us about himself, to know himself, to pursue his glory for our betterment. And you and I have access to it. Like, I have like four Bible apps on my phone. Just use one of them, man. You know, I have like four Bibles in my office and then others at home because carrying them in my car is just a lot of work. And are we people of the book? You know, this next week we're having VBS, the church. If, if you haven't been a part of our church, the VBS here is a, is a pretty big deal. And we have to remind ourselves that what's going on in VBS more than crackers or games or fun time, but there is there is true battle between good and evil. And Satan is so desperately trying to tell seven and eight and nine-year-olds that what they know through the word is not good enough. They need more, just like what he did with Adam and Eve. And if you're volunteering at VBS, whether you're in a classroom or you're giving out snacks or you're doing games or you're just kind of meandering around or you're on the safety team, you have an opportunity for two and a half hours every night to remind young, impressionable people that what they have is not just enough, it's most good, according to Peter. It's a tremendous thing. I I love this quote by uh, Bible commentator Samuel Cox. So it's like five lines, so just bear with me, but I love it. He says, Peter, the apostle, knew a sounder basis for faith than that of signs and wonders. He had seen our Lord Jesus Christ receive honor and glory from God the Father in the holy mount. He had been dazzled and carried out of himself by visions and voices from heaven. But nevertheless, even when his memory and heart are throbbing with recollection of the sublime scene, he says, we have something sure still in the prophetic word. It was not the miracles of Christ by which he came to know Jesus, but the Word of Christ as interpreted by the Spirit of Christ. It's great and fine to be confident in Peter's memory, but it's all the more good to know what Peter was talking about in the Word. Because what we find in the Word is that Jesus actually fulfilled all the things that were to be desired of a Savior. If you just trace the lineage of the Old Testament, what it does is it, is it tries to, to rise and fall between, from these glimpses of maybe this is the king or maybe this is the king or maybe this is the savior that'll come. And then Jesus arrives and fulfills all those things that were ultimately always, not by accident, they were spoken about by him. He perfectly obeys the law and he fulfills the law. He perfectly obeys the Father and fulfills what the Father sent him to do. He perfectly pays the price for people like you and me where you and I, we couldn't save ourselves in our sin. Only Christ could pay what we could pay or what we needed to pay. Only he could absorb and stand the wrath that you and I deserved. And so he's given us that truth and that reality from his word. And so we see like in Ephesians 2 where the church is being built up on the faith and foundation of the prophets and the apostles, those who had come long before us, who had been so inspired by the spirit of God that they were directed to write down these things so that thousands of years later, the church can be built up all over the word by the truth. And it's not man's truth, it's God's truth. And he, and he says that we would do well to pay attention to scripture. What a nice, polite way for him to tell us to read the Bible and to know the Bible and to consume the Bible. Because when we do that, it's like a light shining in a dark place. It's like a lamp in Psalm 119 that lights our path. Or in 2 Timothy 3, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And he he talks about that there will be a time where there will be almost an enlightenment of the soul where the Lord will appear in our hearts. It says the day dawns and the morning star rises in our text. Now this doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become really, really holy at the end. And it's like, it's like we are like many Christs with Christ shining through us. But this morning star, that's so obviously referring to Numbers 24, where a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will arise out of Israel. This morning star is much like someone who would appear after someone is longing to know that person. Maybe some of you have gone off into battle through the military. Or maybe you've gone away from home for maybe months or weeks. And you might write letters to your loved one. Or you might have written letters prehand so that they can read along the way. And don't you know that spouse would read those letters? Or that loved one would read those letters in and, and every ounce of ink meant something. Every word meant something. It's almost like you can, you can smell your wife or your husband there. And then when they return, you're not going to read the letter. You're not going to sit in the living room and they go, well, I'm back from a long time away. And it's like, great, but I'm going to go to study and read that wonderful letter that you wrote me. No, you would want to be with them as much as possible. You'd want to be around them, be consumed by them, asking them of things, worshiping them in our case in the text of scripture where Jesus appears and it's like the morning star rises in our hearts for we no longer will need the scripture when we're with him. We no longer will need to read about him when he's in front of us. So why pay attention to these words? Because until that time, until that time of immense suffering or oppression, we have glory to be reminded of and it fuels us and we're reminded of it all the time. Now, Peter's anticipation, anticipating a rebuke of this or a reminder of this because it's normal for people to say, well, the Bible was made up by men and their heirs and you know, this thing is a little bit different than this thing. It's like the oldest you know, unapologetic thing in the book to do where someone would, would go against Christianity and say, yeah, but not even the Bible is perfectly put together. And, and against that you go, look, the Bible is the most criticized thing in all of human history and here it still stands perfectly together. You know, as much as we can dig in the Middle East, as much as we can look at the facts that are in the scriptures, as much as we can see what has been prophesied about has actually come true, everything in here looks as if it has been pieced together by God, not from the interpretation of men. So the interpretation, or the word that is there in verse 20, it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What that's talking about is there's, there's interpretation within a book or within a section of the Old Testament that people would say, well, it's, they're messing it up and they're mixing up all the interpretations. What Peter is saying, not only are the small particulars of the Old Testament are true, but actually the scriptures as a whole are true. When we, when we say the word interpretation, that's hopefully what we do from the pulpit here every week. The, the, the tense there, the word there is like you're untying hard knots. And he's saying this wasn't from man, but it was guided by the Holy Spirit the whole time. Look at verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's important to see in this, in this verse, verse 21, is that how much of it hinges on verse 19. So just to go through kind of a, a, a litany of all those words, it says, We have a prophetic word made more sure. Which you would do well to pay attention to, since no prophecy is interpretation. For no prophecy wasn't produced by man's will, but men spoke from God by the Spirit. So Peter's telling us to pay attention to the prophetic word, because it will establish an unshakable faith. All the more than what he's already said of what, it, what will establish an unshakable faith knowing and trusting and hoping in the return of Christ. And it will establish a faith all the more of what he's already told us, to pursue godliness and to be reminded of the gospel. What we're seeing in this text ultimately is the greatness of Christ showing out through the words to the church, Whereas an apex of the scripture, our author is clearly wanting to put the focus on when the going gets tough, aim your heart at who Christ is what Christ, what Christ did and what Christ will do. He will return in glory and it will look majestic. So pursue knowledge, Peter says. Remember the powerful return of the Lord and heed the prophetic word when you aim to establish your faith. Let me close with a couple of things a couple of years ago when Brooke and I lived in Oklahoma, we lived in a house that when it rained, the water would get right up close to our front door. And not because we lived in a valley, not because we lived in a ditch, but because there was bad irrigation and bad flow, water flow from the house. Water would just go on the ground. The ground had built up and it would start going back to the house. Now it never went in the house. There's nothing really to be afraid of. That house is 45 years old, it's still there. You know, even in Tornado Alley, it's still going great. The foundation is fear, but every time it would rain, I would have this mini panic. And I'd go out there with a broom and start shooing away water like I can control all the water from the sky. Until finally, I thought, hey, you know where water goes? It goes in ditches away from things. So finally, you call your dad and you say, I don't know how to dig a ditch. He comes and helps, we dig a ditch. And from that point forward, I could sit on my front porch and just laugh at the sky whenever it would start raining. Because I knew what was secure, what was unshakable. Our Lord reminds us in Matthew chapter 7 that anyone and everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Brothers and sisters, we must be reminded from our text, from God's scripture itself that we may establish our faith as something that is unshakable when it's established on Christ's word. In the meantime, as we hope for him to return, as we hope for the word to be with us, as John would say, we can still hope in his return and be guided along by the spirit through his word and be reminded of these gospel truths and gospel realities and gospel imperatives. Because the world not so much is against us, but we do live in a fallen world and we do have fallen hearts and fallen eyes and we do see life for what it is life that is in need of a Savior, life that is in need of a Lord who produces and provides and establishes and keeps all peace. And what Peter is saying is we can have hope in that when we firm ourselves in the word, when we firm ourselves in his return, when we firm ourselves in his gospel because his gospel is him, life delivered to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful and thankful that you remind us by your word of how good you are, what you have done by your death and resurrection and by what you will do that we see showcased in the transfiguration. Lord, we do long for you to return as we feel down and out and we know that life will go on as something that is painful even though that we hope And that we have true hope in you for true deliverance. And so in the meantime, we ask that you remind us by your spirit of what is true. What we can have faith in. And what we can have hope in. Lord, we know that you declare all things good. And so we ask that we will see those. We pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.